In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of all hearts, Saint Louis-Marie de Montfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. As we've announced, our topic for reflection today is the four last things. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Those things that await all of us at the temporal ending of our earthly life, and those things that await all creation itself at the end of the ages. In the end, all things pass away, but in the final analysis, there are death and judgment, which are not so much things as experiences, as events that happen, and then two realities, heaven, and hell, and it's important that we understand them that way. But in order to tease out what that really means, it's important to recognize that whenever we discuss these things, it is always in, uh, against the horizon of creation, fall, and salvation. And if we miss these elements, we do not really understand what any of these four things that we reflect upon today really mean. So let's begin with that. Man was not created for death. Know what happens when we put it that way. We recognize that there's something about death which is actually not natural for us, because we were not made for death. However, if we simply conform to the thought patterns and the way of thinking and speaking of the world around us, nothing is more natural than death. And yet at the very beginning, man was not made for death. Man was not made to be lost. God did not create so that his creation could come undone. Note how important it is to recognize that. We were created then for something other than death. We were created for something other than darkness. It is one of the reasons why death and darkness is so absolutely frightening for the human heart to contemplate because it knows that these realities cut us off or threaten to cut us off from what is most truly who we were made to be. So we pause then for a moment and consider that when God created all things as we see in the book of Genesis, there is something different about the creation of man. There is something different about how humanity comes to be. And in the two chapters at the beginning of the book of Genesis that speak about the creation of human beings, we see that on the one hand, in the first chapter, human beings, unlike anything else, are said to be created in the image and after the likeness of God. Nothing else in the universe is created in that way. But then we see as we move into the next chapter that after God has created all, that as God is creating everything else, he does something different with man. We see that he speaks and there is light. He speaks and the waters are separated and the dry land appears. He speaks and plant life appears. He speaks and the many varied classes of animals appear. And then Instead of creating by a word, God creates by touch. From the clay of the ground, he doesn't speak. 
he shapes, he sculpts. Note the intimacy of that contact, created by contact with God. And then, rather than simply speak, the Lord himself breathes life into man. Note how different that is from everything else. Made from the dust of the earth, but gifted with something more than merely earthly. From the earth, yet robed in glory. From the earth, yet robed in goodness. From the earth, and yet not merely earthly. Made for God. Made for intimacy with God. Made for communion with God. And note how then, when we speak of man, we must necessarily speak not merely of what is earthly, because the very nature of man is not to be merely earthly. Man was not created for death. But we all know, just a chapter later, what happened. We know the story well enough, Adam and Eve, the tree and the snake. And that choice by which man and woman lost that robe of glory which was given them. And as a consequence of their stretching out their hand to what was not theirs, as a consequence of that act of mistrust, jealousy, and disobedience by which they fell together, the Lord says to Adam, and note, his words are not so much a statement of punishment as a statement of fact. You who have cut yourself off from me have chosen earthliness for yourself. You'll fall back into that. You are dust, and to dust you will return. You were not made to return to dust, but that is now what will happen. Sin, as Scripture tells us, produces a certain consequence, and that consequence is death. That consequence is the unmaking of who we are, the undoing of who we are. You will collapse into dust, for you were made from dust. And what do we experience in life? Exactly that. Our moments of strength are few and they pass quickly. Our moments of success are few and they pass quickly. The sting of failure seems to linger with us a very long time. And in the end, however strong we are, however physically attractive we are, those periods of time are brief. And then we look at the fact that all of these things fade into dust. As we say that, we recognize then that something about death afflicts the heart of man. Something about death and the finality that it applies to our living is positively frightening. Because death reminds us all things on this fallen side of eternity come to an end. And among those things that come to an end is me. This is why in sacred scripture, the language of death has striking notes about it. But we will begin here with something that the church prays every single Friday night. Night prayer in the Roman breviary on Fridays includes always this particular psalm, which is a staring into the simple fact of our mortality. O Lord my God, I call for help by day. I cry out in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. And just note the tone of helplessness 
with which the psalm begins, a certain desperation. A desperation or a helplessness in the face of an overwhelming reality which is bigger than me. For my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to the grave. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one forsaken among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. And note again the words. These are one who's, the words of one who's conscious of his strength draining away, of whose life teetering on that edge of fragility just about to tip over into nothingness. And yet note how in, precisely in that fragility and in that nothingness, the only appropriate thing to do is to cry out for help. For by myself, I cannot undo what is happening to me. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a thing of horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the shades rise up to praise you? Is your mercy declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the realm of the dead? Are your wonders known in darkness or your saving help in the land of forgetfulness? And again, just listen to the ultimacy implied in those questions. This is the voice of one who understands that as my life is coming to an end, I can call out to you no more. And lost in my helplessness, there is the grave that swallows me up and no one comes back from there. There are no songs of praise sung in the land of the dead there are no prayers that rise up from that place. And that is where my life is slipping. I call to you while I can, but the moment when I can do no more, that is coming. But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast me off? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dread assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in upon me together. You have caused loved one and friend to shun me. My companions are in darkness. And then the psalm just ends. Arguably the most, the most depressing passage in all of sacred scripture. And it's good that we engage it. Because we Christians after 2,000 years of professing faith in the resurrection, oftentimes have benumbed ourselves to the stark reality of what death means if we haven't been redeemed. We take our salvation for granted. But without the victory of Jesus Christ over death, that is what awaits fallen man. And that is as hopeful as man can get. 
This is why it is so very important to reflect on these things, not from a worldly, but from a Christian perspective. Because if we take Jesus out of the equation, if his victory is not real, then heaven has not been opened. The gates of death have not been closed. And the last word on human life is the word of ending, the word of finality. It is the loss of everything when this mortal body ceases to be. That's the terror that has haunted the human race since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. The fact that all of this comes to an end, that somehow I am cut off from life, from goodness, from that everlasting hope and happiness for which I was made. And those things are not found in the grave. What does one find in the grave? Dust. Remember you are dust, and to dust you will return. That's the consequence of the fall. That is what comes into the world as a result of sin. And as difficult as it is to read, to pray, to reflect on those words of the psalm, note how wonderfully they articulate the consequences of sin. And that this is where sin, this is where turning away from the Lord, who is the source of life, leads us to. And it brings us to a place that we cannot escape on our own. This is why, in no small measure, when we speak of salvation, we don't just say that Jesus saves us from our sins, but that he saves us from death. And again, now. Now let's look at this in a more Christian context. And let's go back to those questions. Will your mercy show itself in the grave? Among the dead, who can praise you? In the land of oblivion, where will your wonders be known? This is what it means for us then. When the Lord gave his life for us on the cross, the Lord in his humanity died a human death. And the Lord descend it to the land of oblivion, to the place of the dead. And in descending there, he proclaimed the wonders of the mercy of God. In descending there, he brought the praise of God to the dark land where praise is impossible. In descending to that place, he set free and snatched out of there those who were consigned to the land of shadow. As depressing as that psalm is, when we recognize that Jesus Christ is the answer to those questions, note how beautiful those questions suddenly become. In the resurrection of the Lord, in the descent of the Lord to the place of the dead, the mercy of God has actually gone to that far country, been announced, been proclaimed, and the end result is life. And when we look then at the victory of Jesus who rises from the dead and in rising from the dead takes our humanity out of the grave with him into a new and glorious life, we see again we were not made for the grave. That is very, very important for us. Death happens. It is a reality that overwhelms us. Because of our sinfulness, because of the woundedness of this world in which we find ourselves, death comes with sadness. Death is experienced as loss, Death is experienced as an unmaking, as a falling back into dust of that which was miraculously given life out of dust. 
And so death has that aspect of sorrow, separation, darkness, and loss, and that is true. However, unlike the world in which we live, we recognize that's not the only thing about death. Death is that moment where even as the body decays, even as the body falls into a certain kind of nothingness, death is also that moment where the immortal part of us, our soul, that which was never made for the grave in the first place, does not rest in the grave, but comes forward and stands before someone. And that would be Jesus. And so the first two of the last things are connected realities. Death, which we are afraid of, and judgment. When we look at what the Lord has done, we see that death is the portal, in a sense, through which we pass toward eternal life. That the grave is not an end, but a doorway. It is a changing in who we are, not an ending of who we are. In fact, when the church prays the liturgies uh, for the dead, one of the prefaces before the Eucharistic prayer says that very clearly. For your faithful people, life is changed, not ended. But note that it is in and through Jesus that we can say that, not for some other reason. So we want to stress this. There is one victor over death. His name is Jesus Christ. There are not many. There is only one who has won the victory over the grave, and that is the Lord. In fact, that is one of the decisive characteristics of his lordship. He is Lord even over the grave. Note how marvelous it is to be able to say that. And, but this next part be, then becomes very important. We recognize then that our fragile lives are given to us and that we're accountable for them. And so let's linger with this for a moment. Because why would the finality of death be so terrifying? Because you only get one life. Despite what popular culture wants to say every now and then where, you know, I'm convinced in a past life I was. And you notice how nobody ever had a past life as like the dog by the stable? You know, nobody ever had a past life as the guy who just couldn't get anything right. Um, bluntly put, you never had a past life, okay? And the life you have now is not going to be somebody else's past life, all right? Reincarnation is not true. It has never been true. And I can't stress that enough. Because the minute we start believing that we get another go around. What it really says is the life I'm living now isn't all that important. The decisions I make now don't really matter because I'll get another chance. Maybe I'll come back as a cat or a dog, but when that's over, I'll get another chance as a man or a woman. But, but also note how futile that is. Endlessly repeating the mechanics of living without any finality, without any real change. Is that really what we want? An endless cycling through this world and history? As if that is all that there can be for us? Note the false consolation in some of these ideas. This idea that I get multiple go-arounds in the end, just means I am condemned to spin my wheels with the mechanics of a fallen world forever. Who wants infinite go-arounds of that? Note that there's no sense of completion. 
And note how nothing ever really matters if that's the case. What I do with the life I've been given only matters in terms of how happy I'll be at the beginning of my next go-around. Note how little that says. So when we recognize that I only have one life, what we're also saying is that the time we've been given is the time in which we work out eternity. That the choices we make now have an eternal consequence connected to them. It's not that any one choice decides my destiny, but how I choose with the way I live, what I do with my life, is ordered to eternity, not to this world. Whether I believe it or not, whether I think it or not, whether I want it or not, doesn't make it less or more true. The simple fact of the matter is man is ordered to eternity. And our lives, even though they move toward the grave, move through the grave to eternity. The life that I live now is moving that way. So note then that the moment of death also becomes that moment where eternity becomes determined for me. It's not when everything comes to an end. It's that point where I step into forever. That is what we mean by judgment. At the moment of death, my life has come to an end in time. But my life is also ordered to eternity. And so that is the moment where my life now moves toward eternity, into eternity. But that movement is conditioned by the fact that I am accountable for the life that I live because I didn't acquire it for myself. There's no one here gathered this day who gave himself or herself life. There's no one here who could earn it. There's no one here who could achieve it. In fact, we come into the world not determining the language we would grow up speaking. We come into the world not determining for ourselves the color of our skin, the color of our eyes, the color of our hair. We come into the world discovering that pretty much everything about ourselves is given to us. And we have to receive it. And in receiving it, then we have to go forward respecting the gift and live it. And we're not the owners of our lives because life is given to us, trusted to us. The time that I have, I'm not the owner of it. It's been given to me to do something with. So at the end, I appear before the Lord of time. I appear before the Lord of life who gave me life, who has given me time. I appear before the Lord, who made me for himself, and who gifted me with the possibility of living in his image and showing his image to the world. Note what I'm really accountable for. It's not just that I do good or bad. I'm accountable for myself. I'm accountable for my time. I'm accountable for who I am and who I've become. I'm accountable for what I've done with the divine image that was given to me. The graces that we receive in holy baptism and through the sacraments are at the service of helping us to do well with that. And so it is that when my life comes to an end, there is a moment of accounting a moment of standing before someone who will see me as I really am. It actually sounds a lot less threatening if it was somebody was just checking off what I did right and wrong. <laughs> but Jesus is not an accountant. The Lord is not an accountant. We don't believe in the cosmic bookkeeper who simply has a ledger of positives and negatives 
in the end looks at it and says, all right, we got three more positives, you're in luck. <coughs> um, you know, it's not that cut and dry. Rather, really, because we're accountable for our lives, we're accountable for who we are, for what we've done with our time, what we've done with our living. And so when we pass away, our soul stands before the Lord who sees us as we really are. And note, to, before whom do we appear? The one who took our weakness onto himself. The one who stepped out of the glory of heaven to make us rich and to lift us up. The one who stretched out his arms on the cross and embraced the pain and the futility of this world and took it onto himself. The one who descended into the grave for us. The one who comes to seek out the lost so that they're saved. So in other words, we stand before the one who wants to save us. Note how important it is to recognize that. When we speak of judgment, we speak of coming before the one whose first desire is to save me, not to condemn me. We appear before the one whose first desire is that I have life in its fullness, not that I lose it. In other words, the deck is already stacked in our favor. And it's important to recognize that. I appear before the one who is rich in mercy, but I do appear before him. And note I'm speaking in the singular. When we speak of judgment in a Catholic context, in a Christian context, we speak of two kinds of judgment, the particular judgment and the last judgment, okay? The particular judgment is for the individual. It happens at the moment of death. At the moment of death, I stand before the Lord. It's the Lord and it's me. And the reality of my life is made manifest, not to the Lord, he already knows it, but rather, in the presence of the Lord, the reality of my life is made manifest to me. And if my life has been nothing but a continual turning away from the Lord, if my life has been nothing but a continual rejection of His mercy, if my life has been one of utter selfishness and indifference, that will be very honest. And I won't need the Lord to tell me what my eternal destiny is, it will be really clear to me in that moment. If my, and so note, note again, this is not simply a matter of doing a good thing or a bad thing or that certain bad things have consequences. That's all true. But the overall tenor of what we believe is a person stands before the Lord, not a series of actions. And if my life, in a sense, has been lived in a way where, even without directly putting it into words, what I'm effectively saying to the Lord is, stay out of my life, I don't need you. Stay out of my life, I don't need you. That is a prayer. I may not think I'm praying, but that is a prayer. And if that's the prayer of my life, in the end, it will be answered. And so we want, we want to be careful about that. We want to be conscious of that. However, however, that being said, we're also in the context of one who wants to save us, who doesn't want anyone to be lost. And so note that the Lord is also that one who will manifest even the tiniest scrap of goodness connected to me and not let it be buried or hidden beneath a mountain of evil. That is the other side of things. But we recognize this because we believe in two possible eternal outcomes, the other two of the four things, heaven and hell. And the moment of decision for those, 
is around the moment of death when we appear before the Lord. Then we believe in the general judgment, the final judgment, when everyone all together, all nations, all peoples, all times, from all places will stand before the Lord simultaneously. In a sense, all creation is before the Lord. And again, it is made manifest who will be going to what eternal destiny. And after that, death is no more, judgment is no more, and there remain heaven and hell. Two places and with two very distinct outcomes. One pleasant and satisfying and the other terrifying. Both of which are eternal. In other words, they don't end. Um, and again, then we see the importance and the weightiness of the small amount of time that we're given. That in this small amount of time that we have, forever is determined. Forever toward happiness, forever toward sorrow. But both of those outcomes are final. There is no changing them once they have been decided. Boy, I'm really a fountain of uh, happiness here, right? <laughs> um, again, and it, but it's simply important to understand this because note what it says then about the importance of the time I'm given. Note what it says about the importance of the relationships I'm in right now. Note what it says about the decisions, the choices that I make right now. They're not valueless, however unimportant they might seem in the broader world. They have a weightiness about them, a solidity about them, a substantial character about them. This is why then, as the Lord himself begins to speak of these things, and he speaks of the issue of judgment and completion, he uses a number of very important examples. He speaks, for example, in one parable of a field planted with good wheat that an enemy comes into and sows weeds all over the place. And the servants come to the master saying, I thought we had a good field here. What's wrong with it? And the Lord says, an enemy has come and done this and put wheat among the good plants. And then note the reaction of the servants. Should we go in there and weed that? Should we just rip the weeds out? And the question is, the answer is no. No, you let them grow together. Because if you're too quick to do the weeding, we're going to lose the good. Rather, we let everything grow together. And note how that describes the world and even describes the church in its own way. This mixture of the good and the wicked growing together and the Lord being patient to allow everything to grow to its fullness before the moment of decision is made. He's not identifying the wheat and the weeds right away. Rather, in the end, everything will be clear, and then we'll separate the two. There's a separation, but one that's born out of patience. The Lord speaks of the angels throwing the net into the sea and bringing in all the kinds of fish. And as anybody who's done fishing know, there are the fish you can keep and the fish you got to throw back, either because they're not good or they're too small, etc., etc., etc. And so it is the same thing. The angels catch everything in the net. But like fishermen, they have to determine what is kept and what is not. And so again, there's this issue of a separating, the good and the bad, the worthy and the unworthy, the weeds and the wheat. And finally, the Lord giving that parable of the last judgment with all the nations before him, separating the sheep from the goats, the sheep on the right-hand side, the goats on the left, and the standard being their moral character their moral living. I was hungry, and you gave me to eat. 
Or, I was hungry and you didn't do that. And so note, that's how we know which are the fish worth keeping and which are the ones that get thrown back. That's how we know which are the weeds and which are the wheat. But the Lord is insistent that there will be a separation. And when he speaks that way, it's important to understand. He doesn't say, and he never says, the majority is lost. But he does say there is a real possibility of being lost. And that's important. The church has never taught definitively that any single individual is in hell because it's not for us on this fallen side of eternity to pronounce that about anyone other than the one who we know is there, which is Satan. Um, so note, no human, not Judas, not Hitler, not any of history's horrific examples has ever been definitively said by the church to have been lost and damned. We can make a good case that that's probably the likely outcome in some cases, but it is not for us to pronounce the finality of that. So when the Lord is speaking this way, he wants to hold in front of us the sobering reality that that is a real possibility for all of us so that we don't seek that outcome so that we redouble our efforts to move toward the good and the right. And why? Because man was made for eternal happiness, and the Lord wants to give us that. Note how important that is when we recognize it. Note how important it is when we recognize it, and then note the examples that Jesus even uses in that parable, The Last Judgment. Notice he doesn't talk about great things, he doesn't talk about tremendous works. He doesn't talk about miracles. He doesn't talk about the great things that saints have done. Notice how basic it is. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you came to see me. Notice how simple all of that is. None of it sounds great. None of it sounds like the powerful things that saints are made out of. Note what the Lord is saying. There is a basic compassion in you that you actually expressed. Come. Come and have your reward. <clears throat> but then note how chilling the other side of it is. You didn't even give me something to eat when I was hungry. I was thirsty and you had no water for me. I was naked and you just left me that way. So note again the standard, that standard of mercy, that standard of compassion at its most basic level. And the Lord saying, if you are incapable of that, you're lost. That should give us a lot of hope because very few of us are that incapable of basic compassion. But note the insistence is it's not a feeling. You actually have to do it. There has to be a gesture. There has to be something concrete. And um, so as we speak of these things, it really becomes important then to recognize. Our lives have a finality to them. That finality in time we name death. But death is not the last word for us. It is, however, the moment where the decisive word on our lives is pronounced. Because it's the word about what we've done with our lives. And it's what we make with our lives, what we do with our lives, in cooperation with God or in rebellion against him, that determines our eternal destiny. So now having spoken about the four last things, let me sneak a fifth one in there. Um, and it's related to the issue of judgment. Because, again, it's important to recognize heaven 
that state of perfect blissful union with the Lord, precisely because of that, has no room for sin at all. It has no room for selfishness or wickedness. If we understand what it means to be in the presence of the unspeakably great light of the holiness of God, we must understand that that light allows no shadow at all to exist in its presence. This is why we see in sacred scripture time and again, the Lord appears and the reaction is, oh, I am so dead. Because the weight of his holiness is crushing down on my sinfulness and my sinfulness can't survive. So note, heaven is not for a heart that's mixed. And we have to understand that. If my heart is half charity and half selfishness, it's not qualified for heaven. It's not ready. And we have to recognize that. The holiness of God is real. And again, when we look for the ending of all things, we look for the passing away and the destruction of evil. Not a new creation which tolerates a little bit of evil still hanging out because we're not ready yet. <coughs> and again, so again, if we pay attention to just the nature of what it is we believe and what it is we profess, that God is holy, God does not, God does not live with evil. Heaven has no evil in it, it has no room for it, it has no space for it. Now all of a sudden we're nervous again. Because my heart's not all charity, my heart's a lot of ambition, my heart's a lot of selfishness, my heart's just a lot of lazy. Um, and so again, this is where we pause because we recognize that in all of that language of the sheep are over here and the goats are over here, many of us are sitting there saying, I don't know which one I am. In all honesty, and if I talk about Uncle Harry, whom I love deeply, I don't know about Uncle Harry either. In fact, he's closer to the goats, but he wasn't one. What happened to Uncle Harry? And again, this is where sometimes our pious language works against us. We want to be quick to console. Oh, so-and-so is with God right now. You know, the Lord needed another angel in heaven. So let's answer a couple of these things. Your loved ones who pass away don't become angels. Neither will you. Okay? They are human beings. You are a human being. When you die, you remain a human being. No one becomes an angel. That is not what we believe. And again, that's important because Jesus Christ did not become like an angel. To save the world, he became like a human being. There's a greatness about humanity that the angels do not have. On this fallen side of eternity, we're much less. But in the mind of God and in the plan of God, humanity has a dignity even greater than that of the angels. Don't settle for second best. We don't become angels. There might be a certain likeness on the other side due to the glorification of our bodies, but we remain human beings. Okay, so number one, nobody becomes an angel. Not a child who passes away very young, not a very holy old grandmother who passes away in great peace. Nobody becomes an angel. We rather become more gloriously the human beings we were made to be. Um, however, the question is, what happens to those of us who, when we pass away, 
are basically good or largely good, but not completely. We still cling to our vices. We still have those little areas where we say to the Lord, take my sins away, Lord, but leave this one for last because I kind of like it. Um, you know, that's, that, you know that's, that's how our hearts work. You know, we, we have those members of our families or among our friends who they never turn their back fully on God, but you probably had to bribe them to get them to church. Um, you know, who were good in their own way, but also selfish in their own way. You know what? Honestly, that's most of us. So if we say that the heart must be perfect to gain heaven, what does it mean then for the vast majority of us who are neither so wicked as to clearly merit damnation, yet are not so good as to be received directly into heaven? That's what we have purgatory for. We don't have it. The Lord in his mercy gives it to us. And so note, when I say that when we die, we stand before the Lord and the truth of who we are is made apparent. And it may be that the truth of who I am is somebody who's really happy that Jesus died for him. And somebody who time to time did his level best to be a good guy, but lots of other times didn't try. The Lord at that moment looks at that one. And he looks not with condemnation, but with mercy. Because he wants to save us. But we have to be made ready. In other words, the heart that's not ready needs to become purified. It needs to be purified of its attachment to sin. It needs to be purified of the unresolved damage it left behind in the world that it didn't repair. It has to be made ready for glory. And so there are those for whom the Lord pronounces the word of heaven. And then he says, but we need to get you ready. And so note, when we speak of purgatory, what we are saying is all of those souls that are in purgatory right now are going to heaven. They are not lost. They are simply not received fully into glory yet. And there should be much consolation in thinking about that because it takes the harsh either or off the table. And we recognize that the Lord is not so merciless that if I have not achieved complete holiness on this life, I have no chance. Rather, in his mercy, there is still that opportunity. However, let's also be clear about this. The word purgatory is from the word purgation, a purging of things. If that sounds unpleasant, it is. Okay? And so purgatory is not like the celestial waiting room where, okay, I, I'll read a few magazines. Eventually the doctor will come and see me even though he's always running late but then I'll have my appointment and it'll be good. That's not purgatory, okay? Purgatory isn't the waiting room with angelic Muzak playing. And we sit there and we make small talk with one another. Purgatory is that place where I am being passively purified because I no longer have the opportunity to actively purify myself. So in other words, the hard work of becoming pure on this earth that I don't do will be applied to me in purgatory. The classic image is fire. The Lord purifies us by fire. Not a fire that is destructive to man, but a fire that burns away the impurities.
The classic image from scripture is that silver or gold are purified in the furnace. The impurities are burned out so that the gleaming precious metal is left. That's purgatory. So let's be blunt. None of us should want to go there. Okay? If we find ourselves there after the last judgment, we should count our blessings because it is a blessing. But it is a lot easier to purify ourselves in this world when we can do it by means of our actions and our choices than it is to be subjected to the purification after we're dead. So note, those who are there are destined for heaven, but they must be purified. This is why we pray for our dead. This is why. Because our prayers for them, whether it's offering masses, whether it's prayers like the novena we're saying, whether over these first eight days of November, the visits to the grave signs that can gain the indulgences for our loved ones, this is all at the service of speeding them through that process of purification, of diminishing the amount, of diminishing the heat, of diminishing the time. In other words, what we can do for them speeds them along toward heaven, where then they can pray for us. Um, so it's important to recognize that. And when we speak that way, we also see that curiously, death doesn't separate us from our loved ones. It separates us in a physical sense, but not in a personal sense. I can still be present to my departed. I can still help them. I can still pray for them. And now let's linger with this because this is just very important. Because one might say, well, you know, but grandma died 25 years ago. Surely that's a done deal. Why would I pray for grandma now? Why would I pray for somebody who died 400 years ago? Don't tell me purgatory's that long. We don't want to think that way. Past, present, and future apply to us. They don't apply to God. God has no past. God has no future. God has everything all together now. We have a past that falls away from us. We have a future that we don't have yet. We only have this narrow present which we control, and even as I say these words, that moment has already passed. That's us. That's not God. God doesn't have a past that he loses. God doesn't have a future that he doesn't get. He's outside of it. The end of the world has already happened for God. It was present to him the minute he created the world. And so when we pray, and our prayers for our loved ones are given to God. It doesn't matter how long ago my loved one passed away. They're effective. Because they're in God's eternity, not my time. And think about that for a second. Remember how lonely it sounded when I said when you die, you stand and it's you and Jesus and the state of your life right there? Just think about how lonely that feels. Even if we've lived a really good life, think of how lonely that sounds. But imagine, imagine this. It's you and it's Jesus and the prayers your family members across time have said for you. And they're there too. The voices of all of those who've prayed for you advocating before the throne of the Lord for your good. Imagine that. Imagine at that moment Note how marvelous that is. Note how marvelous that is, where even as the Lord says you need to be purified, but your purification's already been diminished because of the prayers that have been said for you and are being said for you even right now. Imagine that. Imagine that moment where one stands before the judgment seat of God, and even that moment of judgment is on the razor's edge. And there's that prayer that stands with the person that produces that final opening to grace, which 
can gain happiness. Don't, that's, that, that is why what we do in November is so important and what we do across the year when we pray for our dead. Because when we recognize that, none of us ever has to think of ourselves as being alone in that moment. That moment is particular to me, but I'm never by myself. I'm never by myself. What a great thing that is. And so heaven, hell, death, and judgment. We need to preoccupy ourselves not with hell, but with heaven. Okay? We don't get to heaven by worrying about hell. We get to heaven by wanting to be there and letting that desire move us forward. Um, we need to be aware of the negative outcome as a reality check. But that awareness is not going to get us home. Our true home is heaven. That's what we were made for. What we need to do is cultivate a desire for it. And so note again, as we wrap up, when we speak about heaven, we are speaking about a joy that is greater than all of the joys of this world put together. We are speaking of a happiness and a peacefulness that is infinitely greater than any contentment, however rich we believe it to be, from this world. And if we just simply name that, how often people say, I just want to be happy. I just want to be at peace. And yet we settle for small, passing happiness, which doesn't last very long. We stretch out our hands to false sources of peace and we dedicate our earthly time seeking these things. We lose ourselves in those things. When, if we learn to keep our eye forward on that fullness of life in communion with the Lord and desire that, our choices begin to correct themselves and orient themselves and we know where we're moving. Because again, that question of what am I doing with my time can be answered with another question. Where am I moving? What am I moving toward on a regular basis? And if I'm regularly only moving toward passing things and all my time is devoted to organizing them, obtaining them, navigating them, managing them, it's not that that's horrible, but I'm not necessarily moving toward where I need to go. The real issue is using the things of the world for the sake of moving beyond the world. We move through the world to get to the world to come, our eternal home. You know, and when we recognize that, when we recognize that, then we can really begin to live well and with real vigor and with a certain joyfulness. Because note, if I'm really looking forward to heaven, there's an expectation and a desire for it. And that expectation and that desire begin to produce a certain anticipatory happiness within the one who has them. Think of those times you look forward to something really good. You know, those of you sometimes who are parents who have children living away and they haven't been able to come home for a while and you know finally we're going to have the family together for Christmas. And there's a certain joy. They're not in the house yet, but there's a certain joy at the thought of it. A certain excitement at the thought of it. You notice how very few of us have that with regard to heaven? This is the real value in reflecting on the last things, is to remind us of that. The important thing is not to be afraid of hell. The important thing is to cultivate a joyful anticipation of heaven. Because that will really direct us along the right way. And that will, in a sense, put a spring in our spiritual footsteps as we move forward. I am not made for lesser things. 
I am made for an eternal home with the Lord in heaven. And what does the Lord say? There's many mansions in my father's house. Don't think there's not room for you. And that idea then of expectation and joyful movement toward a goal. So again, four last things. Death. It simply marks the end of our time and the moment where we stand before the Lord and we enter eternity. That's the judgment. But the point of all of it is heaven. We don't want to miss the point and end up away from the goal. But fleeing the bad outcome doesn't necessarily get us to the good one. What gets us toward the good one is learning to cultivate that desire for it, for that goodness, that greatness of eternal happiness, fullness of life in heaven, for which you and I were in fact made in the first place. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you all for coming out to pray with us today.